Hey, my name is Brian Golden. I'm the lead pastor of Centerpoint Church. And I just want to personally thank you for listening to our podcast. And I also want to invite you wherever you are around the country or in the Tampa Bay area to join our digital online campus at centerpointfl.org. And here's what you need to know. Our vision is to create an alternative to church as usual for all people. And all that means is, regardless of whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus, you're new to faith, you're investigating faith, or you don't even know what you believe, our goal is for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. So this is going to seem contradictory to everything we've talked about in the series, if you've been in the series, but you know who I can't stand? Um, anybody, so this is kind of was a good segue, honestly, anybody who hurts or mistreats one of my kids. And, and you kind of, you like, you get that. If you're a mom, obviously, if you're a dad, you're a foster parent, a guardian. But I just think, like, people in general, like, you get that, understand that concept. Um, my little girl, that's my oldest. I notice already, so, like, she's just old enough for where boys like her, and um, I don't know that I'm handling that well. So, Uh, A few weeks ago at the spring fling, I'm like, what's the boys' names again? And can you point them out? And like, literally, I'm like, yeah, he looks like a player. Like he, I know he's 10, (laughs) but he looks like a punk. Like just that protective nature um, that's in you, that's in me. But in all seriousness, like about a year ago, and this is kind of the first time um, that we'd experienced this, where one of my kids got really hurt, like legit hurt. And I just noticed this thing in me that I didn't know existed before that just came out. Like, cause you got everyday emotion and anger, like my car broke down, something happened at work, you know, somebody's a jerk, so, you know, whatever. And you feel that. And then there's the whole box of my kid got hurt, emotion and anger. And that's different. And I tapped into that. And like, it was just on another level because of just that thing that you feel. And here's what I discovered in that. And I knew it, but I really experienced it. That that there's no really sense in kind of making peace with me if you've done something to one of my kids, especially if you haven't made it right. I mean, all, and you know, it's true, right? All the like, you could give me gift cards, you could try to make it up with money, you could sing me a song, you could do all the sucking up in the world. If it's not right with one of my kids, it's not right with me. Like there's just this inextricable link in terms of relationship that if you hurt them, you got an issue with me, Right. So anyway, that's just, I had to get that off my chest. We are in um, part five of our series, brand new. And what we're talking about, if you're brand new or you're watching via YouTube or online, listening via radio in the house today, um, Jesus introduced a brand new movement in the first century that was unlike what the world had ever seen. And what we've said now, and this is the fifth week, is that for a lot of people, though, the brand of Christianity that they've experienced, what they've encountered in Jesus' name in a lot of cases, and I'll just say what you think, has looked nothing like Jesus. A brand that looks nothing like Jesus. In fact, what we've said is some of what maybe you resist about Christianity or about Jesus, the church should have resisted a long time ago. Because if you look back at the first century movement of Jesus, it was the most attractive thing on the planet in the first century that people who were nothing like Jesus, like Jesus, and he liked them. And he was full of grace and he was full of truth. He never watered anything down, but people, nothing like him, liked him. Like the issue was the religious leader, leaders ultimately crucified Jesus. It was, it was a movement that they maybe misunderstood or, or even took shots at what they believed, but they were moved by how they lived, by how they treated people. 
And the reality is 2000 years later in 2023, for a lot of you, that's been anything but your experience with Christianity or the local church. And what I wanna to explain today for a few minutes is kind of taking last week to like a 201 level because I felt like I needed two weeks to fully apply and fully kind of talk about what we began to talk about last week. And if you weren't here, you'll, you'll still be able to catch right up with what we're talking about because there's a way of thinking that I wanna explain that if we were to undo and return to Jesus' original brand, re, Jesus' original intent, it would change everything. And that's not an overstatement. It would change our motivation around things. It would change how we view decisions. It would change our filter for what it means to actually follow Jesus. Because there's kind of a brand or a way of thinking that is subtle. And you're gonna think that I'm making kind of a distinction without a difference, but I'm not. It's such a big deal. That kind of goes along with this way of thinking. Um, and some of this we talked about last week, but it's a brand of Christianity where you think that you can um, have some ritual right? Like whatever it is, and every denomination is different. Some ritual that makes you right with God and you can be right with God without making it right with other people. It's kind of a brand of Christianity where you actually feel guiltier about like missing church than you do about mistreating a person. Cause it's all about this. It's like this vertical relationship. God, we good, God, we good, God, we cool. And so you do some things to what you think makes you cool with God. And then you can treat people however you want to your right or to your left. And some of you have experienced that. That's why you walked away. Or it's a brand of Christianity where other people's sins elicit like superiority or self-righteousness rather than understanding our own sin, rather than being moved with compassion. Or as we said last week, it's this brand of Christianity where we actually use theology, like use verses out of context, not as a means of you know, theology to know God, but as a means to actually unlove or mistreat somebody else. And what I wanna unpack for you is at the center of that, and we don't even a lot of times see it, it is a version of religion. It's a version of following Jesus that's actually all about you. It's actually you-centered. And I'm telling you, the distinction I'm gonna make in the next few minutes is such a big deal because here's the question that that form of religion tends to ask. And this question is okay initially. It's not okay eventually. And the question is just this. It's constantly, whether you ask it out loud or not, it's like, what must I do? What must I do? God, I, I, like, what do I need to do? What should I do? What do I need to do? What must I do to make things right or keep things right between God and me? which you're like, well, what's wrong with that? That's been my whole religious experience. No, I get it. But it, it's all about you. It's all about what you need to do. It's all about what God needs from you. It's all about what should I do? What do I need to do? What's gonna make God okay with me? And then eventually, as we said last week, inevitably it leads to kind of a brand of Christianity that's all about rules and it's all about rituals. Because here's the thing, when, when the Jesus movement is kind of all vertical and you can kind of do whatever you want over here, use verses out of context, yeah, because of what they did. I don't think that applies to me. If it's all about this, then eventually you're going to create loopholes and workarounds and just become a hypocrite in order to meet the standard of what culturally or denominationally they say that you need to do to be okay with God. And then eventually the question morphs into this question. What exactly do I need to do to make things right or keep things right with God in me? Like how low do I have to go? 
Like, what's the bar, the standard? How can I like be okay with ignoring you, not forgiving you, mistreating you, um, you know, saying whatever I want about you on social media, not trying to reconcile that relationship, kind of doing whatever I want, but don't worry, I checked a box. I'm in a community group. I know some verses. I've got, you know, worship on repeat. I attend once every four weeks, which is pretty good. And so like, I'm good with God, but I'm ignoring what's happening horizontally around me. And so the question is, what exactly do I need to do to be okay with God, to be cool with God. And God is saying to us, if you are a follower of Jesus, who believes that you place your faith and trust in him because he lived a perfect life, died the death that we should have died for our sin, past, present, and future, and then anchored it to history by walking out of a grave alive, he would say to us, and this is the gospel, you're actually good with God. And that doesn't mean that you're like off the hook and you can do whatever you want. But what it does mean is your obsessive effort to go, God, we cool, God, we cool, God, we cool. God's going like, no, no, we're cool. The question is actually, are the people to your right and left cool with you in terms of how you are treating them? Because now the vertical relationship with God in Christ is borne out by how you treat people in the horizontal relationships around you. And when it's not the case, it's actually a subtle form of self-centered religion that Jesus has called you to abandon completely. Because in the Jesus movement, it's all about the people who are beside you. And I get it, it's why I wanna take two weeks to do this. Because for some of us, that's kind of jolting. It's kind of messing up or blowing up our theology because it's been all about this. And it hasn't really been about this. And yet this is what Jesus came to introduce, that it's all about people around you, people that don't have the same morals as you, people who do, but you're not treating right, the Republican, the Democrat, gay, straight, religious background, not religious background, don't really wanna hang out with them, don't really like them. Because of what they did for you, you can excuse your behavior like every single individual in front of you, behind you, to your right, to your left. The Jesus movement, how you are in relationship with Jesus is answered by how you are in relationship to other people. And this is what Jesus came to introduce. I mean, when you understand this, I'm telling you, the Jesus movement suddenly is not exclusive. It's not judgmental. It's not hypocritical. It kind of puts everybody on an equal plane in need of Jesus. And we're like, hey, you should follow Jesus. And it brings the entire New Testament to life. Because suddenly it's a new filter and a new motivation where all of a sudden John 15, 12, my command is this, this is Jesus, love each other as I have loved you. And Jesus, I think would say, and do you remember how much I loved you? Do you remember what that love looked like? Or then I love, man, this is my favorite verse maybe, that's a big statement. But Paul in Galatians 5, 6, he's like, the only thing that what, help me out. Thank you to 27% of you. The only thing that the rest of you that what? The only thing that counts. And you're like, well, Paul, are you sure? And Paul's like, shut up. I'm writing the Bible. Of course I'm sure. It's a verse in the Bible. The only thing that counts. Now, let me just stop you for a second. Think about all the stuff that counts. Think about all the stuff that's a big deal in terms of religion or faith or morals or what you feel like God would have you. There's a lot that's a big deal. Like there's a lot that counts. And Paul's like, but I'm just telling you, if you don't have this, nothing else matters. Like you can live your whole life checking boxes, going to church, people applauding you for your theology. You got a seminary degree. You know so much. Like you, you've, you've done this and that and you've been applauded for your prayers and the fact that you know so much and you've been at this for so long and you're like, 
right? The model Christian, he's like, you can stack all of that stuff up, but if that faith is not expressed in love, you can take a 40 year ride trying to follow Jesus, thinking that's what matters and get to the end of your run and none of it mattered. Because the only thing that counts, this is Paul's words, this is a crazy verse, is your faith, your theology, your knowledge expressing itself through love. He later wrote this, a few verses later, that the entire law, such a big deal. All the verses you can think of, all the Old Testament law, whatever other thing that you pull out, all of it summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I'm telling you, I don't know if I can do this justice. This represents a complete departure from what many of us were handed in terms of the brand of Christianity or Jesus following that we were introduced to because it it represents a complete new filter, a complete new motivation, a complete, completely different lens for how to make decisions and for how to live life. So let me illustrate a couple for you to try to drive this point home because some of what I'm gonna ask you, I know what the church answer is. I know what the Christian answer is. I know what you just, you, you're gonna know as soon as I tell you, but here's a couple of the reasons why you should do a couple of things. And here, if you grew up in the church, I know already before I get there, I know what your answer is. Well, because we take the scripture seriously. Okay, yes, because we believe the Bible and there's verses and we take God seriously and we, we're constantly asking the question, what should I do? What do I need to do? How do I obey? So we're, we do what we do because we take the scripture seriously. So do you know why you should tell the truth? You're like, oh, easy, easy. We tell the truth because I'm pretty sure, like most of you only know about four of the commands, but I'm pretty sure there's another command in there about not lying and there's some verses about not lying. And so that's an easy one. We wanna obey God. We wanna take the scripture seriously and there's a whole command around it that I can't remember, but I'm sure it's in there. That's why we do it. Uh, Wrong. And that was a little aggressive. So let me say it like, (laughs) that is not right. And that's what we grew up with. Like, well, that's the reason. There's a verse. We take, no, no, no. Do you know why we tell the truth in the new Jesus movement, the new model that Jesus introduced, this new motivation filter for everything? You tell the truth for this simple reason, even if you can't remember the chapter and verse, even if you're not sure it's in there. We tell the truth because when you don't tell the truth or lie about somebody else, you hurt that person. You cover yourself, right, at the expense of them. You communicate non-verbally. You're not worthy of the truth. You're not worthy of the truth. And listen, this is not I'm gonna tell the truth so that God loves me. This is I'm gonna tell the truth because I love people. And it's different than what do I need to do? What should I do? How do I need to obey? Listen, even if you lost sight of all of that, the reason that you should go into that difficult thing and you should tell the truth anyway is not because you found a command. It's because the greatest command is to love other people the way that God loves you. That's a brand new filter. That's a brand new motivation. Do you know why you should be generous? Again, you're like, oh, easy. Grew up in the church. I know this one because there's some kind of verse somewhere that I can't find. Pretty sure it's the New Testament that like it's more blessed to give than receive. In fact, the Greek word, you know, maybe you're, you're at that level. The Greek word blessed is actually means happy, translated. So I'm happier when I give. And again, can't find it, but I'm pretty sure there's a command that says don't be greedy. So that's why we do it. Nope, wrong. That's not why we're generous. 
You know why we're generous in the New Testament movement with a new filter, with a new way of processing decisions, with a new motivation? And you're gonna wanna write this down because it's pretty deep. Do you know why we're generous to other people? Ready? Because when you are generous to other people, it helps the people that you're generous to. I told you you should have written that down. Like it's a big deal. That's why we, not because, what do I need to do? What should I do? Let's reverse it. Do you know why you shouldn't talk about somebody else behind their back? Well, again, there's probably a verse about it. I think there's things in the scripture about don't gossip. And I think there's a commandment. So if I violate the commandment, it's a sin. No, that's not the motivation. You don't talk badly about somebody else because when you do, it hurts them. You can't love them and talk badly about them. It undermines their integrity. And what it does is it elevates you at the expense of them. It is the language or the behavior of the insecure and the wounded. And you shouldn't do it even if it's not in the Bible even if you can't find a verse, even if you're not sure if there's a commandment, because this is the New Testament way of Jesus, that you can't lie and love other people, and you can't be greedy and love other people, and you can't gossip behind somebody's back and love other people. It's not compatible. And there's no amount of, well, I gave, I attended, I learned a verse, and so I can ignore all that and still be cool with God. God's going, no, 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 I love you. I'm never gonna stop loving you, but you're not cool with me if you're not cool with your brother or your sister to you right and left. It's a new way of looking at every decision in your life. The scripture we do take seriously. There are certain moral imperatives. There are things that we need to take seriously. But listen, if I got amnesia tomorrow and all I could remember was Jesus' few words in the upper room, that would be all that I needed. To love my neighbor the way that God has loved me. This one's super specific, but I'll keep going for a second. You know why you shouldn't pressure your girlfriend sexually? Because when you pressure somebody else, even if you're not sure, is there a verse about that? Is there, when you pressure somebody else to do anything, you create regret for that person. And I've said this so many times, but it bears repeating. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're following Jesus, you shouldn't create regret for somebody else in terms of maybe what they're looking at. This is what honor God. This is what I wanna do. This is, what, this is what I think God wants for my life. This is what I want for my future. When they are talking about their greatest regret in a future counseling session, your name shouldn't show up. Do you know why we should take sex seriously and what Jesus talks about in the scripture? And I know that this has been so distorted for some of you, you have this idea that God is gonna, you know, handle all of the wicked and people who have sex and that somehow it wasn't his idea and that he doesn't own the patent and the reality is he does and he created us for pleasure and that's a whole nother message series. But the reason you should take it seriously is this, not because God's out to get you, that God's trying to withhold from you. Because if you undermine the sexual experience of anybody else in terms of their future, you actually sin against that person. And no amount of ritual to go, yeah, but I did this thing and I confess and I prayed a prayer and I'm cool with God and God's going, we may be cool, but they're not cool. You need to go get it right with them because that is a brand new filter, a brand new motivation. It's no longer I should, I need to. God, what do I need to do? God's already done all of that. If you wanna express your love for God in terms of how you live your life, it is expressed in how you love and treat other people around you. And even when you can't find a verse for it, This is the motivation for why you do what you do. And I get it, because this is messing with some of our categories. Like I think we'd go, okay, but Jesus, what about? Jesus, what about? Jesus, what about? I think Jesus would step into all that to go, 
do you need a verse for everything? Like this is what's so phenomenal to me that the New Testament, and this is where many of us haven't interpreted it like this, but the New Testament imperatives are examples. They're just examples of how to demonstrate your love for God by loving other people. It's not an exhaustive list. This is why you don't find commands in the New Testament because it's just a bunch of, here, let us, let us give you some examples to start. Let us give you a little like head start to know here's how you handle love in certain situations. The epistles were written to specific churches around very specific issues, just as kind Kind of a, a barometer to go, here's how that you begin to apply this. And now for all the 3,000 other things that aren't in the scripture, that aren't addressed in the New Testament, where you can't find a verse, rather than looking for a loophole or workaround, Jesus eliminated all of that to go, no, 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 the standard is really, really big. I want you to just ask the question, how do I love them the way that God has loved me in Christ? Go. And when you do that, come on, isn't it true? It's what we began to talk about last week, the loopholes, the workarounds, the what you can get by with begins to dissipate. I mean, think about how far Jesus took this, what we said throughout the series. I mean, this is not mind-blowing to you, but it was mind-blowing to everybody in the first century that all the law and the prophets, all the commands, all the prophecies, all everything, all the verses that you're thinking of right now, all of them are summed up or hang on these two commands. I want you to love God. I want you to love your neighbor. And I think, I think maybe like one practice that would be really helpful for some of us who grew up in a brand of Christianity where we're constantly like, God, are we good? God, are we good? We can always find a verse. We can always find a loophole. We can always find a workaround. Is that maybe just for a month, just a month, I, I wouldn't do it longer than this. Maybe you just somehow intentionally forgot every other verse and you just concentrated on Jesus' singular command because for some of us, we're in the habit of going and finding a verse that somehow we think supersedes the greatest command that Jesus has given us. So maybe just for a month, we just need to practice eliminating every other verse, every other loophole, every other weaponized passage and just get used to, okay, so if I didn't know anything else, how do I apply loving other people around me the way that God has loved me? Go, just do that for a month where you have no option to find loopholes or workarounds. It's just, how do I do what Jesus has done for me? Because listen, the scriptures are all commentary, all application of that one singular command. And it's not just for your benefit. It's not just for God's benefit, God's good. It's for the benefit of the people around you. And I get like how this messes with stuff because I know some of you are like, well, yeah, all due respect. That's kind of cheap grace. That's kind of watering it down. That's kind of not taking the text seriously. It's got Woodstock for Christians. I don't know why I just did that. It's, it's uh, it, like, it's all these issues. Can I just address, are, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Because here's what I'll give you. The Jesus movement, the brand that Jesus introduced in the New Testament, it is far less complicated, I'll give you that. Like I could show up today and I could pull out a bunch of Hebrew, bunch of Greek, keep you here for 60 minutes. I could download layers of theology where you'd walk away because of maybe the environment you grew up in went like, that is so deep. That was so deep. I feel so close to God. What, what are you supposed to do with it? I have no idea. I didn't understand any of it, but it feels so deep and I'm so confused. That must be the spirit of God working in my life. Like we could do that. So I'll give you the brand that Jesus introduced. It's far less complicated. 
You almost always understand what to do, but it is far more demanding. It'll take you way beyond your favorite verses, way beyond your weaponized passages, way beyond your blocks of scripture out of context. And come on, if you, if you ever wonder, is it watered down at the epicenter of Christianity, at the epicenter of this movement, your savior, if you're a follower of Jesus, the son of God died covered in other men's saliva and blood. If you wonder how far this goes, if you wonder what this de demands, and come on, if we're honest, some of us are so used to environments where we can just go, I don't think it says that. I don't think it means that. I don't think that applies to me. If you knew what they did, if you knew my circumstances, if you knew what I've struggled with, if you knew, and I think Jesus is on my side and I don't think that's a sin. And there's always a loophole. There's always a workaround. There's always a verse. There's always some way to get by. And then you look at Philippians 2.5 where it is, when this becomes the filter and the motivation, it becomes really hard to find loopholes or workarounds in this. In your relationships. And by the way, in the Greek, that means in all your relationships, every relationship, everybody on social media you interact with, the in-law that you don't like, the person down the street that you cannot stand, I'm sorry, includes all, in your relationship, your attitude or mindset should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Or Luke, when he writes this, words of Jesus, but I tell you, those who hear me, who does this? Love your enemies. Pray for those who what? Just say it out loud. Pray for those who what? Hey, are you, who does that? We barely pray for people who like us. And he's like, no, no, this is the standard I'm talking about. This is a new filter. I mean, what are you gonna get by with with that verse? What were you saying again? What was your story again? What were you telling me again? What verse were you? I want you to pray for those who hate you. Not, you know, disinterested. Not they don't compliment you enough. They actively work against you. They undermine what you think is valuable. They don't hold maybe any of the morals that you hold to. This is how I want you to operate under my New Testament command. And then Luke 6, 36, and be merciful. Okay, but how merciful? Like, give us a line, give us a standard. Give us three things so we know. Be merciful just as your Father in heaven is merciful. And come on, I don't know about you, but there's times when I am rocked by the level of mercy that God has shown my life rocked by the level of grace and patience and understanding and the relentless, unending nature of his love because I know me. I want you to love like that. I'm telling you, I don't know if I can do a good job explaining it, but this is why the Jesus movement and the brand that Jesus introduced that may be very different than what you've experienced, this is why it is so spectacular. And it's why it's increasingly, I think, more foreign in our current cultural context because you almost corporately and individually know the answer to the question that we've talked about here for years and that I mentioned last. You almost always know the answer to the question. What does love demand of me? What does love demand of me? What does love demand of me? Not what did my Sunday school teacher tell me, not did what some church leader tell me, not in a brand of Christianity that it's normative to twist the scripture or what the rest of her, you know, the herd mentality of culture is doing. I mean, you can find a thousand justifications for anything you wanna do. 
When you start narrowing in on this, no longer can you hide behind the label Christian. If you're talking about disciple of Jesus, follower of Jesus, as Jesus has defined it, I mean, that's terrifyingly clear. What does love, not what can I get by with or justify or what three friends are yelling in my ear, it's okay because everybody else does this. And I think this is what Jesus meant. What does love demand of me in my marriage? with my neighbor that I cannot stand, with an adult kid that walked away a long time ago and you're not sure how to reconnect the relationship and it's so foreign with what you've raised them to do and you're struggling with, the, with that dynamic and the gap, with the individual that doesn't hold to anything that you hold to, the person in culture or the group that you've kind of demonized because they just work against everything that you think is right. What does love demand of you? before you think this is watered down, before you think this is somehow cheap grace or not taking the scripture seriously, that somehow this is easier. When your heavenly father asked this question, it cost him his son. And when his son, your savior, asked this question, it cost him his life. This isn't watered down. And can you imagine what would happen in our families in your context, in your toxic work environment, with that friend, with that in-law, in our community, in our churches, if we took that seriously. I mean, come on, just look back to the first century followers of Jesus, and I've said this throughout this series. They had nothing. They had none of what we, they, they had no thought that there was anything that they could leverage. They had no political influence. They had no money. They had no standing. They had no platform. They were despised in culture by certain groups, they had nothing to leverage except for Jesus' commands. They had no completed Bible. They had scraps of the Torah. It wasn't accessible to the common person. And they took this singular command and they single-handedly took over the caste system of the first century. A caste system that even related to the gods, I've joked about this before, but it's true, that there was a caste system even with the gods where if you were lower income, lower middle class, you got a JV style God, couldn't even grow your crops. If you were wealthy and you were seen as God loved you more, you got Zeus or Jupiter and the church came in to go, no, no, that's not what God is like. Red, yellow, black, white, everybody is made precious in his sight. And they began to elevate the status of women. They began to invite slaves into their churches to go, you are the Imago Dei, you are made in the image of God, you have extraordinary worth. And nobody else in that culture or in world history was advocating that message. It came with Jesus where suddenly slaves and women and Samaritans and outsiders and the marginalized found a place. And the reason they did is because Jesus' followers took those scraps of writing and that one command to go, how do we go into our community with so little understanding of theology and just love our neighbors and our enemies the way that God loved us? And they did. And they asked what love demanded in every situation and every decision. And without any hyperbole or overstatement, they changed the world. And if we did that again, if you did that in your family, your marriage that's on life support, an adult kid that walked away a long time ago and he's waiting to see Jesus in you, it could resurrect anything in your life. Amen. It could change communities. It could do something for the glory of God in our context that we can't even imagine because we know this from the first century. They may be critical of what we believe. Like, I don't understand these people. But they would be so envious 
of how we treated other people, how we loved our enemies, how we behaved, not because we're trying to get God to do something for us. God, what do I need to do? God, what should I do? What do I need to obey? Because now I know that in Christ, if I've placed my faith and my trust in him, God is good with me because all of my sin was taken care of at the cross. And now if I wanna love God, if I wanna follow Jesus, the following Jesus and loving God is gonna be determined by how well I'm loving you. It is a complete departure, but if we did this, it would change everything. And so as we end, I wanna end with a few verses because I get this and I say this with, with grace and humility. For some of you, you're like, I don't know, man. You're messing with my categories. That's not the theology. Like it just feels like it's all like horizontal and not vertical. Like you're just dismissing the what we need to do for God, God's glory, you know, bringing glory to God, living our life to obey him. Like it just feels like you're dumbing that down and it's all about the horizontal and not the vertical. And I totally get that. So I just wanna kind of put your, your mind at ease for a second. I'm all about God's glory. I think the chief aim is to glorify God, to glorify Jesus, to live our lives for his fame, for his renown, to, to live worthy of what we've been called to and what God's done, to follow Jesus, to bring glory to Jesus. You and I are on the same page. I totally agree with you. So listen to how Jesus defined that. And I, I say this with all the love in the world. I hope for some of us, these next few verses bother us. Here's how Jesus defined living for God's glory how the vertical relationship, rather than God, are we good? God, are we good? God, are we good? God's going, we're good. What about the person to your right and left? What about your neighbor? What about your mother-in-law? Here's how Jesus defined it in Matthew 25, 31. When the son of man comes in his what? In his glory, all the angels with him and he will sit on his throne in heavenly, what? We're all about God's glory. We're all about pointing and shining a light on the fact that God is good, God is big, He's invited us in and it is all about him. And so Jesus gives us what that looks like in very practical terms. And, and this is often misinterpreted. At the end of the day, he was actually, the application is to Jesus followers, what he's writing here. And he says, all the nations, verse 32, are gonna be gathered before him and he'll separate the people one from another as a shepherd, separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll put the sheep on the right and the goats on the left, and then the king, talking about Jesus, the final king, the king above all kings, will say to those on the right, come, you're blessed by my father. Take your inheritance because the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And in this kind of context, it's kind of a, a story, in essence, that Jesus is playing out, predicting the future. So there's, there's him and then there's the people in this story. And so the people in the story are like, okay, well, what do we do? How, how did we get this? How do we get this inheritance, this reward, this blessing? I mean, like, how does this happen? How do we glorify you? For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. And again, the people in the context of the story are like, well, when, I, we didn't win. We just met you. Just now, when did, you, when did we feed you? Or I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. They're like, oh, we don't, do you remember that? We never gave Jesus a drink. What are you talking about? I was a stranger and you invited me in. And they gotta be thinking like, but when? I mean, I invited you into my heart, I think. Does that count? Like, when did we invite you in? When, when were you a stranger? When did we give you something to drink? I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick. They're like, what? Jesus doesn't get sick. And you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And they're going, okay, so, so you're saying that for some of us, we've spent our entire 
religious experience going, God, what should I do? What do I need to do? What do I need to obey? God, are we good? God, are we good? And then all the while I was looking for you to look out for me, make sure that I was good. And somehow I was looking out for you. I was doing something for you. And then the righteous will answer, Lord, this is so important. When did we see you? When did we know God? When did we see God? When did we experience the presence of God? Jesus, when did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When, when did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And if you were to put this in our context, like when did you feel close, closest to Jesus? I feel like I have to say it like that. When did you feel so close to God? You took a trip to the Holy Land and you went with a group and you stood on sacred ground and it was where Jesus stood and so many of the stories came alive and you have never felt closer to God. You have never felt more of a connection. You just felt the presence of Jesus. Or was in that Bible study that one time and I mean, Beth Moore was just killing it, spitting fire and you had never experienced that before and you just, it was this thing that awakened, you felt so close to God, so near God. Or was it the end of camp and there was an acoustic guitar and there was just a CD burning that you were a part of and you surrendered all to Jesus and that was apparently for nobody in this room and you just surrendered your life and it was like, I've never felt closer to God. I've never felt more of a connection. I just felt the presence of Jesus. When did you see Jesus? When did you feel Jesus? And Jesus would say, those are great. Other than CD burning, those are great. But who are all of those things about? You. And the essence of following Jesus is not about you. And the king, King Jesus, will reply, I tell you the truth, that whatever you did for one of these the least of these brothers of mine, you did that for me. And in our cultural context, this isn't just a socioeconomic status. This is for anybody who is on the outside. Doesn't look like you. Doesn't live where you live. Doesn't use the words that you use. Uses a whole bunch more doesn't hold to your morals, feels like they're working against you. In fact, you might be able to put them in the enemy category. And Jesus says, whenever you've done something for one of them, you've done it unto me because the Jesus movement and the brand that he introduced in the first century is all about the people who are around you. In fact, I put it this way, that your devotion to God is illustrated, demonstrated, and authenticated by your love for people around you. And if you are not loving the people around you, and I'm talking about just the people that are easy. I'm talking about people on the outside. I'm talking about whole groups that you've demonized in culture. If you are not loving them well, I don't care what your seminary degree is. I don't care if you have a THM. I don't care if you've been involved in this for 40 years and everybody looks to you and you're a pillar and you have so much faith and you're so, if you're not living a life that loves those people, you are not living for God's glory. And you might not be really following Jesus. 
Okay, did I mention at the beginning? Did I mention that when you mistreat one of my kids, did I say that when you mistreat one of my kids, did all the singing in the world, give me gift cards, sucking up, is not gonna make up for it. Like, did I mention that the best way that you could honor me or any father has nothing to do with me? Like, did I mention that the most honoring thing that you could do for me is to do something good for one of my children? It's all, you know, it's almost like whatever you do for one of them, it's like you're doing it for me. It's almost like that verse where Jesus is in the garden, he prayed, and you probably know this prayer if you didn't grow up in the church, but these words are powerful. He starts the prayer this way, our Father. What if it's that simple, guys? Not easy. Take you beyond all your favorite passages, all of your childhood theology in some cases, but what if it's that easy, but that demanding? What does love demand of me? And I'm going to honor God. I'm going to glorify God by loving you. And the harder you are to love, the more honor it is to my father in heaven. What if the church did that? And next week, as I promised, I'm gonna end this series being painfully and maybe in some cases uncomfortably specific about what love demands of us. It's corporately and individually. You don't need to be scared of that. I, I don't overstate this for some of you. It may be the catalyst for your life to change. It may be the catalyst for somebody's life around you to change. Even though it's the last week, it is a great time to invite. Do not miss next week because there is such practical application, not just about like what's going on out there with you, with your family. What does love demand of you? But what I wanna leave you with is just this question. What if... What if we just did this? Your family could change. Your life could change. You've been living like you don't have what it takes or it can't be different or God. No, no, no. If you do this, this unleashes the power of the spirit of God. You know, what if we just did that? One of the things that I'm praying for our, for our church, and I know this word can be misused, but I mean it with all my heart, is that God would bring revival. And in some ways I feel like God is stirring that, that acts, God would stretch out his hand to perform miraculous signs and wonders in the name of his holy servant, Jesus, that the same power at Pentecost is available to us. And if just our church would begin to live this out. We will turn our city, our county, and beyond upside down with the power of Jesus. What if we just, what if you just did that? Let me pray for us. If you would just bow your heads, close your eyes, just out of respect for people in the room. Jesus, I pray that in this moment, you would do your thing as I've prayed throughout this, these weeks, that you would take this, you would contextualize it, you would personalize it, in a way that is almost eerie, you would meet us right where we are. And even right now, the areas where we are tempted to reach and grasp for excuses, or to justify, or to point to, I just pray we would let all of that go. I pray for some of maybe for the next month, we would just maybe practice the discipline of taking Jesus one foundational New Testament, new covenant command and willfully just forgetting everything else just for a month and beginning to live and to operate and decide based on this filter and this motivation. That in some cases, 
will be harder than we ever imagined. How do I treat? How do I decide? How do I love the way that God in Christ has loved me? So God, do your thing in our hearts and in our life for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways? First, if you would just spread the word, share this message with your friends, family. Maybe you could go rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher, but this helps us so much more than you know. And secondly, this ministry is supported by people like you through their financial generosity. And so if you've been impacted by any of these messages, would you consider giving to support the mission and vision of Centerpoint to see people reach with the radical grace of Jesus? You can give today on our website at centerpointfl.org. And again, that's centerpointfl.org.